Welcome to the Word at First Prez. The sermon you're about to hear is not part of a regular sermon series. It stands on its own and can be instructive to our Christian faith in its own way, even though it's not linked to other sermons. I hope you enjoy. I'd now like to turn to our scripture reading, which comes from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. This is the resurrection appearance on the road to Emmaus. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today is also from Luke's Gospel. It is a continuation of the story that Alex read a few moments ago. Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. 
For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is the first day of the week. For us, that means it is Sunday, April 11th. I think in these pandemic times, it is especially important to always orient ourselves to the day of the week and the date of the month. We are in the second Sunday of Easter on the church calendar. For the disciples, the first day of the week means it is Sunday, the day after their Sabbath, and it is the day on which it appears that grave robbers have stolen Jesus' body from the tomb. In Luke's version of the resurrection story, women came to the tomb bringing spices to anoint Jesus' body. The body hadn't been anointed properly. You may remember from other readings in Holy Week because his death had taken place so close to the beginning of Sabbath that they just took him down from the cross and put him in the tomb. So now the women are coming back to rectify the situation and to anoint him properly. When the women get to the tomb on the first day of the week, the first thing they notice is that the enormous stone covering the opening of the tomb has been rolled away. This alone causes them to wonder and maybe be just a little bit frightened about what might be going on. They look into the tomb and they find it empty. This happens in all four Gospels. In Luke's version of the story, the women get to the tomb, find the stone rolled away, look into the tomb, find the tomb empty, and then find themselves in the presence of two strange men that are in dazzling white who ask them the profound question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? The men go on to remind the women of all that Jesus had taught them and of the fact that he himself had said that on the third day he would rise. They go to tell the remaining disciples, the other 11, the men that had followed Jesus, men who have been in hiding ever since the arrest of Jesus. 
The women stay with Jesus at the cross. The women go to the tomb afterwards for the ritual anointing. These women do what women have done for centuries. They take chances for someone they love in the face of danger. After all, Jesus died as a state criminal, a political criminal, and a religious criminal. They very well could have walked to the tomb and been arrested or killed themselves by the Roman government or by the Jewish hierarchy. But they disregard that possibility and go to the tomb anyway. And then they communicate. They communicate by telling the story to the men of their encounter with the empty tomb, of their encounter with the strangers in dazzling white. Just as God first speaks to a woman about the coming of Jesus into the world, so now God first reveals to women the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. In this day, however, women were not trusted as credible witnesses. They had no standing at all in their society. It is no wonder that the 11 male disciples ignore their chatter about this empty tomb, these visitors in dazzling white. It is no wonder that they chalk it up to an idle tale. An idle tale. This is why we find Cleopas and his friend walking away from Jerusalem. They didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Instead, they decide to leave the city, to walk away from the scene of the crucifixion, away from the angry mobs, away from the oppressive Roman government, away from the Roman soldiers who just might crucify them if they find out that they were among those who believed in Jesus. They are despairing and desperate. All their hopes and dreams had been shattered with the teacher's conviction and crucifixion. They decided that the best thing for them to do was to cut their losses and walk away away from Jerusalem, away from all the possibilities and promises that Jesus had offered to them, away from lost opportunities, away from the place that had robbed them of hope, away from danger and death. And while they are walking and talking, as two friends would do, Jesus suddenly comes alongside of them. And listening to them, he asks them what they are talking about. They are astonished. Have you been living under a rock? Who are you anyway? They don't recognize Jesus as their risen Lord, as their risen teacher, because after all, what the women had said was simply idle talk. So they pour out the story to the stranger in their midst. They talk about the betrayal 
the arrest, the mock trial, the way the religious and political leaders mocked Jesus and beat him, the inscription hung above him on the cross, the King of the Jews. They even tell Jesus that some women had reported the tomb empty. When they are finished explaining all that had happened over the last week, Jesus looks them in the eye and says, Oh, you foolish men, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have declared to you. Jesus, still their beloved teacher, still unrecognized by them, begins to talk to them about the scripture. He teaches them as they continue their journey. When Cleopas and his friend get to the village of Emmaus, they invite Jesus to stay with them for supper. After all, it's getting dark, and he's a stranger, and he shouldn't be traveling alone. And so Jesus agrees to stay with them. And while he's with them, he takes the bread from the table, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. And when he gives it to them, then, then, their eyes are opened, and they recognize the risen Lord in their midst. And in that moment, in the blink of an eye, Jesus leaves, and they get up and run back to Jerusalem. Now they believe. Now they have a tale to tell the other disciples. There is joy and chaos when they get to the place where the other disciples are staying. Simon has also had a resurrection appearance. Everybody's talking over everybody else. It's like a big, wonderful family gathering. And before they can think too much about this whole resurrection business, Jesus appears in their midst and offers them his peace. They are still afraid. They are amazed, but they are also still very afraid. So Jesus shows them his hands, his feet. He displays for them his wounds. And when he sees there is still doubt in their eyes, he asks if they have anything to eat, and he eats a piece of broiled fish in front of them, for how can a ghost eat? Once he has proven his physical reality to them, Jesus again teaches them by interpreting scripture to them. Now in the first encounter with Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, we are told that their hearts burn within them as Jesus interprets the scripture. And in this second resurrection appearance, we are told that their minds are open to what Jesus has to say to them. It is both our hearts and our minds that encounter the resurrected Christ 
in our midst. It is both our hearts and our minds that convince us to believe in this impossible possibility and motivate us to go share the story with others. It takes Luke three full stories to describe the process that it takes for the original 11 disciples to come to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. First, there are the women at the tomb, then Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, and finally, the 11 original disciples, those closest to Jesus, those who had spent the most time with him, those who had witnessed the miracles and heard the teachings, it took them the longest to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I wonder why. Perhaps it is because they remained centered in the power structure of the day even while they followed Jesus. A part of them was always warning Jesus not to go too far, not to cross certain boundaries, not to push the envelope with certain people. Even while they followed the one whose ambition, whose job it was to turn the world upside down, they clung to the current power structure of their society. The women, the ones accused of telling an idle tale, they have no role in this power structure. So they have nothing to lose by believing the men who tell them of the risen Christ. They have no problem accepting the message that they will not find Jesus the living among the dead, they get it. After all, they don't have any stake in the current power structure. The unknown disciples, Cleopas and his friend, they have to work a little harder to understand, but once they witness the breaking of the bread, their eyes are opened to the risen Christ. And they are so excited that we can imagine them running the 12 or more miles back to Jerusalem. Those others, those first fishermen that were called away from their work to follow Jesus, they have so much more to lose. They have so much more to lose. And for them, when they recognize the risen Christ, they have to acknowledge the fact that even death has no power over love. It means recognizing the reality of a power greater than the Roman Empire, of a power greater than the current religious hierarchy, and this is scary and dangerous, so no wonder they are both amazed and terrified. No wonder Jesus says to them, 
peace. No wonder they are hiding. No wonder they chalk the women's story up to idle talk. It is too scary, too risky to believe that the teacher had actually risen from the dead. If they believe this resurrection nonsense, then they might have to do something. They might have to change the way they're living. They might have to go talk to other people about this amazing and beloved Lord and teacher. They might have to look at new and creative ways of being in the world without being of the world. They might have to let go of what little power they think they have. They might possibly lose their own well-secured place in society. It's so scary to imagine that it even gives me a stomachache. Just imagining what they are feeling, I am afraid. And I want to squash it down and try to make things stay the way they've always been. Resurrection, redemption, restoration. These are big words. They talk about big things. And all of them are being talked about a lot on this first day of the week, not only back in Jerusalem, but right here in our own society. Those are the words that embody the hopes we have for dismantling our racist structures. Those are the words that embody the hopes we have for some type of reasonable gun control. Those are the words that represent the hopes we have for welcoming people of color to all the power tables in our country. These are words that can lead us into a fresh new future, not the future that we may have been planning on prior to the pandemic, but a new future, a different kind of future. Resurrection, redemption, restoration are words that beg us to open our hearts and our minds to the possibilities that our post-pandemic world will offer us, to the possibilities that God is whispering in our ears. They beg us to do something. Resurrection, redemption, restoration. They are action words. They want us to change something, to bring something new into the world. Jim Wallace, a teacher, a theologian, and a social activist, talks about the women <clears throat> who come to the tomb on the first day of the week. 
He calls them midwives of hope. Midwives of hope. He writes this, for their loving perseverance and courage, these women are rewarded with the honor of being entrusted with the most important news in the history of the world. These women and so many women that have come after them through the ages can rightly be called history's midwives of hope. And they become for us on the resurrection morning of Easter the primary example of the story of what we too are called to be. Midwives of hope. Jim Wallace goes on to define this hope as a choice, as a decision, as an action based upon faith. Hope, he writes, is the very dynamic of history. Hope is the engine of change. Hope is the energy of transformation. Hope is the door from one reality to another. Hope invites us to open our hearts and our minds to things that seem impossible, unreasonable, nonsensical, and illogical. Hope invites us to embrace change, possibility, opportunity. Hope is given its very definition in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. All three of these stories in Luke about the encounters with the risen Jesus invite us to hope. They invite us to imagine a world that is vastly different from the one we live in. These encounters with the risen Christ encourage us to think about things in new ways, in different ways, in life-changing ways. And that means we have to change our lives too, not just the lives of others. Resurrection, redemption, restoration. The foundation on which hope is built. And we are the midwives of that hope. We are called to be midwives of hope. For we know the stories of the risen Christ. When we look at our lives, we can see evidence of the risen Christ. When we look at our communities, we can see evidence of the risen Christ. We are the people who have seen the risen Christ and know that love cannot be defeated. Love always has the last word. People who have seen the risen Christ are ready and willing to open their hearts and open their minds and open their eyes to all the new ways of being 
all the new possibilities that are currently in front of us. We are invited to open our eyes, to open our minds, to open our hearts to redemption and restoration, to a living God who still today lives and moves among us on this second Sunday of Easter, on this first day of the week, we too will encounter the risen Christ. May you and I work together to bring all these new possibilities forward, to put new realities into place, to be the midwives of hope that bring resurrection, redemption, and restoration to our world. May we speak the words of love that really will change the world. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.